Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to today's program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the club, and so pleased to host this very special program honoring the mental and behavioral health team at the University of California, San Francisco for their leadership. Before we get started, a couple of notes from us at the club. The club has, of course, shifted from in-person programs to virtual events for the entire past year, which has presented some financial challenges for us. We appreciate our viewers considering a donation to support the club's work. And if you wish to, please click on the blue donate button at the top of the YouTube chat box or visit the club's website at commonwealthclub.org. We are so grateful for the support of our viewers. We also want to remind you to submit questions for our guests via the chat room next to your screen, and our moderator will get to as many as possible later in the program. Today's special program is part of the Commonwealth Club series, recognizing recipients of our Distinguished Citizen Award. Our honorees today are truly distinguished citizens, committed to the improvement of mental health care in the Bay Area and the nation. We also thank our generous gala supporters who made gifts to the club specifically in honor of today's distinguished citizens. They are the Bernard Osher Foundation, Greg Dalton and Lucia Choi, and our board member Mark Zitter and his wife, Dr. Jessica Zitter. Today's program will honor the work of the UCSF uh, Behavioral Health Team for its innovation in mental health. We salute UCSF Psychiatry and Behavioral Health Behavioral Sciences Department Chair, Dr. Matthew State, Neurological Surgery Chair, Dr. Edward Chang, Dr. Lisa Fortuna, Chief of Psychiatry and Vice Chair at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, and UCSF Health Executive Council Member, John Pritzker. Announced just this week, the UCSF Nancy Friend Pritzker Psychiatry Building will be the new home for UC San Francisco's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Scheduled to open in the fall, the building is the culmination of a longstanding vision to integrate physical and mental health at UCSF. The new building is supported by a gift of nearly $60 million from John Pritzker and Lisa Stone Pritzker. And it's named in honor of John's sister, Nancy Friend Pritzker who died by suicide at age 24 during a depressive episode in 1972. The facility is designed to optimize patient care, drive collaborative research across disciplines and disorders, and destigmatize mental health care through thoughtful design. Dr. Edward Chang and Dr. Lisa Fortuna will be joining us later in the program. So now it's my pleasure to further introduce Mr. Pritzker, Dr. State, and today's distinguished moderator, Michael Krasny. John Pritzker is chairman of the John Pritzker Family Fund, and he's well known for his commitment to mental health, serving on the Executive Council of UCSF Health and supporting the Commonwealth Club Speaker Series on Mental Health, dedicated in memory of his sister, Nancy Friend Pritzker. Mr. Pritzker is also a significant supporter of UCSF's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, in particular, the department's research, faculty, clinical care, and training. He's passionate about reducing stigma and ensuring the availability and accessibility of mental health care. 
His charitable work on this issue has been aimed at supporting efforts to reduce mental health stigma at the individual, community, and systems levels. Being honored along with Mr. Pritzker is Dr. Matthew State, MD and PhD. He is the Oberndorf Family Distinguished Professor of Psychiatry. He's also the director of the Langley Porter Psychiatric Institute, president of Langley Porter Psychiatric Hospital and Clinics, executive director of the UCSF Child, Teen and Family Center, and chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UCSF. As head of the UCSF Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Dr. State leads a diverse and talented team of professionals dedicated to advancing mental health across the lifespan through comprehensive and compassionate patient care, through pioneering research, excellence in training the next generation of mental health leaders and active engagement in the community. Under his leadership, the department has focused on breaking down the historical barriers between mental and physical health, advancing integrated care, research and education across the clinical neurosciences, promoting the development of a highly diverse mental health workforce, prioritizing innovative programs, caring directly for the Bay Area's most underserved populations, and combating the stigma associated with mental health, with mental illness. I've had the pleasure of knowing and working with Dr. State for over 35 years, and he is a man of many talents across several disciplines, as well as a wonderful human being. We have a wonderful moderator this evening, Michael Krasny, distinguished host of KQED's forum program for 28 years before retiring this past February. Michael has also remained professor of English at San Francisco State University. Before Michael begins the conversation, let me once again congratulate Mr. Pritzker and Dr. State and the entire UCSF mental health team who share in these awards. Gentlemen, would you please let everyone see your awards? Michael, I'm very pleased to turn the program over to you. Thank you. And thank you, Gloria. It's good to be here. And let me also echo what Gloria said with warm congratulations to both of you and to UC and to all who have been involved in this remarkable work that you've been doing, which I want people to find out more about. And I thought, John Pritzker, I'd begin with you and uh, not only congratulate you, but also sort of thank you as a serious citizen of the Bay Area for the donation and the support that you've given. I want to talk about the new building and find out all about it. But first, let's talk about your passion and what got you involved in this? Uh, it's personal in many ways, as Dr. Duffy kind of indicated. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, uh, and thank you for coming out of retirement to talk to all of us. Um, I had a sister, Nancy, uh, who, who uh, um, died by suicide in 1972. And uh, it took years to process what had happened uh, to Nancy, to our family. And one of the conclusions I came to, I mean, 72, as, as Matt will tell you, was the Neolithic age of, of psychiatry. There were no medications per se, and uh, you just didn't talk about it. And that held true for my family as well. And um, I realized that so many people could have, could get treated for what is a very common uh, situation, depression affects so many people, uh, but but people tend not to want to broach the subject. I, somebody once said to me, the kidneys, the liver, the heart, they're all organs, and the brain is an organ, and you wouldn't hesitate to talk about any of the others, but 
you, you, people just don't want to talk about about uh, suffering with mental illness. And so uh, Nancy, uh, we we didn't talk as a family about Nancy for years and years. And uh, literally one night, I was with my younger sister, and we had never approached the subject. And we spent four or five hours talking about Nancy. And I realized it it wasn't dangerous. It wasn't awful. It was quite a relief. And uh, from that sprang this notion of how do we how do we work on stigma, uh, the stigma of mental health. So that's that was kind of where it all came from, Michael. Well, that uh, ties in with the new building. And in fact, let me go to Dr. State on this. Uh, so much of the new building has been tied not only what we just heard from John Pritzker, but to the idea of diminishing the stigmatization of mental health. Uh, Talk about what your vision is in terms of how that's going to be implemented and how it's going to really make a difference. Great, thanks for the question. I, um, I think we thought about it in in, in a variety of different ways. Um, uh, it, at one level, we felt that having a building that was patient centered that allowed people to come and receive uh, their care there, and particularly families who have children who may be suffering from a psychiatric illness, but also have uh, medical uh, conditions, uh, that having one place where medical care and psychiatric care could be integrated under one roof would be helpful um, and would begin to send a signal that um, that those things are on equal footing. Um, as John said, that there's no difference seeing your doctor in one room uh, for, uh, you know, your regular pediatric checkup or an adolescent uh, with an eating disorder, seeing their doctor and their nutritionist to make sure that, you know, their heart is fine and everything is functioning okay. And then to be able to go next door um, and uh, and receive uh, psychiatric and psychological care. So that integration of mental and physical health, we thought was really important. Um, we also um, uh, really, in thinking about the design of the building, wanted to send a message about how UCSF feels about patients who are seeking medical care. If you, know, you go around the country and look at many academic medical centers, when you know, again, if you have a child who, um, uh, you know, unfortunately has a serious illness often they're going really to gleaming monuments of modern medical science. Just a block away uh, from the new uh, Nancy Fran Pritzker building is the Benioff Children's Hospital. But often when you're seeking care for psychiatric illness in those settings, it's, you know, you're um, going off campus, maybe to a converted office building, often to places that look like, you know, they might have been designed as a, as a medium security or low security prison. And so we really wanted to send a message in the design of the building that, um, that you would come to a place that is hopeful, that's light filled, that's easy to navigate. Um, uh, and, and that, um, you know, really, um, uh, uh, indicates that UCSF is making a significant commitment to an investment in taking care of patients, regardless of whether or not their primary complaint is physical or mental health. So we, we hope that in that way and in others that the building will really stand as kind of a, um, uh, a symbol against stigma, against the separation of mental health care from physical health care. Yeah, it's striking how integrative the vision is. Uh, and I, I assume you're also talking about treatment and all different phases of life and families, as well as individuals, and maybe some research there as well. What's the status of the building? Where is it, where it's in terms of construction and opening? Um, we, we're shooting for a first patient um, by the end of October. 
um, and uh, and very hopeful that with some of the challenges around the pandemic that 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 date won't slip. So I got my fingers crossed. Um, yeah, thanks for for uh, making that comment. I think um, we are focused on particularly the patient-centered notion of care and the way that that plays for stigma um, or plays a role in addressing stigma. But the building is really designed, as you said, is really uh, uh, to be integrative across multiple uh, dimensions. So the building has extensive resources for clinical research, uh, dramatic expansion of our space for training and education of medical students through uh, residents and postdoctoral fellows, as well as the clinical services, um, and really brings together many disciplines from neurology and neurosurgery, radiology, anesthesiology, um, even OBGYN. We have a, a program in the building for expectant mothers uh, looking at ways to use psychosocial intervention to decrease uh, preterm birth. So it really is very much an integrated vision, which we also hope will, will begin to lead to, um, uh, you know, really an acceptance of mental health um, being, uh, you know, part of the entire experience and not something that's uh, marginalized and stigmatized. So I think, John Pritzker, it's safe to say that we're talking about tremendous enhancement potentials as far as accessibility and availability for mental health patients. Yeah, one of the, the ideas. So um, we bought this building. It was a Copenhagen warehouse uh, outlet uh, at, at uh, 3rd and 18th. And uh, I had a number of friends that said it was the dumbest thing I had done. And then a few weeks later, they announced Benioff Hospital and poof, I was a visionary. Um, but it was strategic. We picked that location because it's really the hub of public uh, transportation and UCSF transportation, literally right there. And the notion was with UCSF's focus on community care, it would make it accessible to everybody in every neighborhood. And, and that's really how we ended up in that location. Could you say a little something, John, about, uh, I know your foundation is involved in a lot of other things related to mental health, and that's all kind of tied into the vision here to talk about that. Yeah, so uh, as an example, one of the things uh, we're supporting is the development of, um, of the India Basin Waterfront Park. Um, it's a place to congregate, to play uh, in Bayview Hunters Point. And I, I think of it, I don't know uh, if I get in hot water for it, but I think of it as, as a, a new Chrissy field for that part of town. Uh, and we think, and especially given the uh, impact of the pandemic, you, we see now the uh, impact of community and open spaces and how important they are to mental health. Uh, and so that's a, that's a big part of uh, our foundation's work. Um, the, the work we're doing with, Common, uh, with Commonwealth Club uh, the speaker series around mental health. Uh, so those are some of the things, Michael, that we've been focusing on. Well, thank you, John. I, I want to go back to Dr. State and uh, kind of piggyback on something you just said, which is I'd like to hear from you, uh, Dr. State, about what your department's had to do in terms of adjustments with all the exacerbation under the pandemic of mental health problems uh, that are the result of the pandemic and that are tied to it. Yeah, it's been uh, it, it's been quite a year. Um, 
you know, we had a very rapid transformation. I have to say for people who, who aren't aware, um, UCSF psychiatry, well, you know, we play, we, we are the, the mental health service for UCSF health and UCSF campus. We also um, uh, run the psychiatric services at CSFG and at the San Francisco VA and a number of community-based programs spread across the city from uh, the Mission District um, uh, um, to Upper Market. Um, and so there were multiple challenges in, in multiple different domains kind of all hitting us at once and for very different populations. So um, at UCSF proper, we went from um, literally 3% telehealth services to 99% in a week. Um, uh, so there's this just profound transformation. Um, our inpatient services remained open, but essentially all of our outpatient care moved to uh, remote uh, very quickly, which was, you know, some programs that Really, people had never really conceptualized how you would run that in, in a remote way. Our people, our staff and faculty and trainees were just incredibly resourceful and innovative in making that transition. Um, that went relatively smoothly in part because of the kind of infrastructure um, uh, that uh, many of the patients who come to UCSF uh, have in their lives around things like being able to engage in telehealth. But it was a totally different situation down on, on you know, sixth and mission at citywide focus, which is um, our citywide case management, which is um, uh, uh, one of our community-based programs. Um, so the largest provider of intensive case management for severely mentally ill. And there, almost all of our patients are either uh, houseless or, or housing insecure. Um, so there we, um, uh, we uh, were able to get investment from, uh, from uh, philanthropy and from the university uh, to hand out to that program and some of our other programs serving uh, uh, marginalized patients who are substance users, um, uh, about 700 cell phones to be able to keep people in touch and to be able to, to avail themselves of telehealth services. And at the height of the pandemic, we were serving about 10,000 meals um, uh, to our patients um, uh, in addition to uh, transforming our services to provide on-site care in some of the COVID hotels uh, going to where our patients were in order to be able to provide those services. As you go around all of our different uh, spaces, it was really, uh, you know, a remarkably challenging year. And I, I just have to say um, sort of simultaneously one of the most challenging and awful years, but also as, as chair of the department here, one of the most gratifying to see how our providers stepped up, um, uh, not only to provide services to our patients, but we also stood up multiple services that we'd never had before for frontline uh, healthcare workers um, and uh, employees at UCSF. So it's really been a remarkable effort. And I, you know, I take the opportunity to thank everyone in the department who, uh, who has just done uh, really unbelievable work over the course of this year to respond. Well, kudos to you and all who were involved in this. I mean, it's staggering and monumental what you were facing during the pandemic. I'm just wondering if you could say something about what you see or envision in terms of the future, particularly in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. How and in what ways can you go on serving the public or do you want to serve the citizenry in the fashion that you kind of outlined for us here? Yeah. Um 
so again, sort of the, you know, one of the very unexpected things was this transformation in the way that we thought about providing uh, psychiatric care. I have to say that, um, you know, one of the challenges that we've already started to face and now fully expect has been a tremendous increase in demand. So while many other services, you know, you read about hospitals that apart from the emergency room and the ICUs, hospitals, uh, you know, services had had um, dramatically decreased census and volumes. Psychiatry has been exactly the opposite. I mean, we're up um, uh, 30, 40% overall, some of our services for child uh, and adolescent psychiatric care up more than 100%, again, with no increases in the number of clinicians that we, um, uh, that we have. Um, and we expect in looking at all the data that's coming through about the response to the pandemic, that this is just the beginning of a new and different kind of wave and surge around a demand for mental health care. Um, so we do think that we're going to need to continue to innovate, um, that we're going to need to continue to rely on some of these things that emerged over the course of the last year that for a variety of reasons we weren't able to do before. So for instance, part of the reason that we provided such a limited amount of telehealth is that there was no reimbursement for that kind of approach. Now that there is, and we hope that that's going to continue, it really opens up an opportunity for us to, to extend our care in a way that we couldn't even really, um, uh, you know, conceive of prior to. And so uh, it's going to be a very interesting year for us. We're already wrestling with this question of how do we balance um, uh, in-person care? We, we, you know, we still believe that that human contact, um, that sense of, of community, even on a one-to-one basis or with group psychotherapy, et cetera, is tremendously important. But at the same time, we know that there are things that the pandemic has now taught us about being able to extend care uh, that may begin to allow us to address what is really an uh, already prior to the pandemic, almost an insatiable, you know, um, uh, demand for uh, mental health services that is only likely to increase. So let me go back to you, John Pritzker, and outline for us as uh, best you can what your highest hopes are. I mean, we're hearing certainly a kind of vision coming from Dr. State. Um, and you're on the executive board and you're, you know, the real reason that this building is going up and uh, deserve great credit for that. Tell us about your vision. You just heard from my early vision. Uh, we, we had uh, a, an early run at getting this project done and we were hoping to attract Matt from Yale. Didn't work out the first time. Second time was a charm. And uh, I have to say that one of the things that attracts me to UCSF is, is the leadership. Uh, you can have all sorts of plans, but if you don't have the leadership to execute, it's all for naught. And with Sam Hawgood and, and Matt's leadership, I, I, I couldn't be more thrilled. Um, I think it's, as exa- it's exactly, from the building standpoint, it's light-filled, it's beautiful, it's filled with art. Uh, and, and more than just filled with art, it's thoughtful art. Matt put together a committee of clinicians to vet each piece to make sure it was it was appropriate to the to the building and, and to the people in the building. Uh, every aspect of the building was very well thought through. There's nothing was done by happenstance. And so as Matt just outlined, the integration of research, physical health with mental health, I, I just I couldn't be more tickled. The building uh, if you've ever been uh, by Langley Porter, there couldn't be a more stark contrast. There's going to be a roof garden. There's a coffee shop. You walk in and it's a 
five-story sunlit atrium full of hope and optimism. Uh, somebody, when they heard about what we were doing with the arts said, are you gonna conduct tours? And I suspect there hasn't been a building dedicated to psychiatry where anybody ever asked if they could have a tour of the building. Uh, well, I gotta so, give a little kudos to my friend, Sam Berendis, who was head of Langley Porter for a while because he was in charge of bringing a lot of art in there. And I think that's, that's right. Very, there were some very good decisions there, but it may pale in comparison to what you conceived here in this new building. Well, I, you know, every now and then you get lucky and we were able to attract Richard Mizrock, uh, who is a great, great Bay Area photographer. And we'll have art by Richard has, has, is providing uh, large format photographs and we're doing a community-based art program with kids uh, that's gonna be just great and really exciting. So I, 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 I couldn't, you know, it's funny, I, I've been excited about the building for a long, long time, but sitting here listening to all this, I, I'm trying not to bounce up and down in my chair. This is really a dream come true. You might resemble Tom Cruise if you did that, I think. You wouldn't want to do that, I don't think. Um, I, think he was, I think he was talking about psychiatric medications, too. <laughs> uh, he was talking about Katie Holmes, I think, at the time. But oh, it's, you're right. It, it's infectious to hear all this excitement from you, though. And uh, the same with Dr. Stane. We got just a few, we're going to introduce a couple more people into this conversation. Let me just go back to you, uh, Matt State, for just a moment and find out about research and what's going to be up ahead with research in the new building. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think it's, it's it, I, one of the areas that I'm extremely excited about. I, I you know, in my life, I'm, I balance between being a researcher, um, I was, um, and, and, and a clinician. And um, I have a tense, intense interest in this for a whole variety of reasons beyond curiosity. And I do have to say that, I, you know, I think one of the most powerful kind of antidotes to stigma is going to be, um, you know, breakthroughs in research that allow us to understand particularly serious mental illness in a way that we've not understood it before, and then particularly to do a, a better job of treating it. I think, you know, there, we have history with cancer and many other disorders where, you know, those kinds of transformations of really beginning to understand at a basic level, and then very importantly, being able to intervene in very effective ways, including to provide cures for some of the most severely ill um, uh, patients is something that um, really is the vision for the research, both in this building and in our basic science efforts. Um, so in this building in particular, I, you know, we're going to bring in some folks um, uh, uh, soon. One is uh, uh, Dr. Eddie Chang, who's the chair of neurosurgery, who's a remarkable partner with us in a very broad program that brings together neurology, neurosurgery, psychiatry, um, uh, to, to think about new ways to address, to understand um, a psychiatric illness and then to uh, be able to directly influence um, uh, um, uh, activity in the brain. Um, sometimes for, um, for those who are not severely ill, what's called non-invasively, um, but, but to do that in a way that really has the power, we think, to transform um, not only understanding of our ability to treat. And then there are a whole range. One of the amazing things about this building, as John said, you know, I could kind of jump up and down in my chair as well, is that the range of things that we have available here is really, you know, we had more than 100 faculty involved in planning this building and being able to take a blank sheet of paper and say, what should psychiatry and psychiatric clinical research look like 10, 20 30 years from now to the best of our ability. And, and really there isn't anything that we thought of that we don't have an opportunity to have in this building, a sleep lab, a psychedelics research center, um, a neuroimaging center, neuromodulation with transcranial magnetic stimulation, 
and ultrasound. We've got, you know, a therapeutic kitchen and research facility dedicated to eating disorders, a therapeutic kitchen, um, therapeutic gym that's dedicated for kids with early developmental uh, challenges. There, it, it really is a, a remarkable opportunity for us and a platform, I think, to make the kind of breakthroughs we hope that's going to help transform the field. Getting me jumping up in my seat here. I mean, this is all really very encouraging and very exciting, particularly in light of the fact that, according to recent data, one in five adults has some mental problem uh, of, a, of a serious nature or a quasi-serious nature, and one out of six total. I mean, that's a stagger. Those are staggering numbers. That's why it has to be destigmatized. And I, I, I give a great deal of credit to both of you for what you're doing here. And again, congratulations on this well-deserved award. And you mentioned Eddie Chang. I'm going to introduce him and uh, a couple of other people who are going to join us here. Um, let me, in fact, say by way of introduction, Ed Chang is Jonah Stanford Wild Chair of the Department of Neurological Surgery. Is himself a neurosurgeon. He treats patients with epilepsy, brain tumors, and cranial nerve compression syndromes. He specializes in advanced brain mapping methods to preserve crucial areas for speech and motor functions. And he also has extensive experience with implantable devices that stimulate specific nerves to uh, seizure, movement, pain, and other disorders. And Dr. Chang, welcome to this. Good to have you with us. Hi, Michael. It's great to be with you guys. Great to have you. Also uh, joining us and great to have her with us as well is Dr. Lisa Fortuna. She's Chief of Psychiatry and Vice Chair at Zuckerberg, San Francisco General Hospital, UCSF. He's also been an investigator on several national institutes of health and foundation-funded studies of Latino and immigrant mental health, integrated care, and access to care. And her areas of expertise are child and adolescent psychiatry, treatment and research on PTSD across the lifespan, immigrant mental health, access to care, and implementation research, including digital interventions. And welcome, Dr. Fortuna. Thank you, Michael. It's lovely to be here. Good to have you here. And uh, Lisa Fortuna, let me begin with you. Let's, let's talk about I mean, you've been in the front lines of this and uh, the efforts, especially during the pandemic have been heroic, if I may say so, especially the work that you and others have done uh, with San Francisco General Hospital, but also throughout the community. Talk about the challenges and, and, and particularly the challenges in connection with the inequities that you've seen uh, and the significance of, shall we say, more vulnerable populations. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I, you know, Dr. State started to talk a little bit about this. I mean, it's interesting. I, you know, I arrived in San Francisco from Boston in November 2020, right? And in March, we were uh, kicking up this pandemic, right? And, and the response. So, you know, I learned by trial by fire, right? In terms of really um, sort of seeing what, what we can do. The good news is that I was at least able to, to learn a lot about our department and the tremendous amount of work that uh, is done here at ZSFG, um, being the psych emergency service for, for the city of San Francisco, um, major, you know, inpatient services, and then citywide case management, which Dr. State mentions, which really um, serves intensive case management, um, the largest you know, pop, you know, number of people who are served by citywide um, who need intensive case management, um, who are homeless, right? And, and one of the things that we immediately um, really felt during the pandemic was our first question was, how do we take care of our most vulnerable people, right, that we take care of? Um, and that was the homeless, right, and our immigrant populations um, and, and the people and, and children, right, who were out of school and we were really concerned about what was happening to them and we couldn't see them. 
So we also went from zero to 100 um, in terms of telemedicine, telehealth. Um, there, was, there was none. We had like no capacity to do that before that and did it about in two weeks. Um, and, and we were, we were dependent at first of, of the generosity of donors who, you know, provided technology, um, for us to do that. And we had to do that in very creative ways because it wasn't just, well, let's, you know, put up our system, but, you know, our homeless population were, you were like, well, they don't have computers. Um, and some of them don't have phones. And we found that it was critical to, to get those phones out. And, and even if though it was not ideal because the, the environment of citywide, the, the community that's built around people for severe mental illness and support, um, those relationships, you know, and that's one of the things I really learned, the relationships that we have with our patients um, are critical to their well-being. And so um, we couldn't have them in a space because of the distancing. So we, um, with the phones, uh, the, the staff and, and, fa- and faculty were able to reach out even to people who were in hotels and um, on the street. And, and there were many instances where, where that actually saved lives. And people were calling when they had an overdose and, and saying, you know, I, I need help. Or, um, you know, really, you know, the, and the constant message that we got was the appreciation that we were, we were still with them. Um, and the same thing with our, our families who, you know, we were able to get sort of technology to them and, and continue to see their children and, um, and, and in the multiple uh, languages that we can, which I think is something that is, is really critical because, you know, at the general, we serve, you know, multilingual, multicultural population um, with minimal access to services otherwise. And the relationships and the, and the cultural sensitivity and the care that we give them um, really overcomes a lot of these issues that we've been talking about in terms of stigma, access, and, and quality of care. And, that's, and, that's, and, and the pandemic just sealed it for me that this is the place to be that's really serving our community. I must say I'm impressed with the emphasis you put on relationships. That's so vital and so important and integral to mental health and to establishing uh, movement forward. And I'd like to ask you about that movement forward because you did so many programs on homelessness and its relationship to uh, not only mental health, but also to uh, addiction. Uh, And there really is a a nexus there between homelessness and addiction. I'm sure you're all too well aware. I wonder if maybe you could say some things that are aside from relationships in the positive realm in terms of moving forward and, and, and moving toward diminishing uh, the staggering numbers that I alluded to before. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we're, and that's something that an area that we want to, you know, we're continuing to expand on. I mean, uh, Dr. State talked about this idea of inter- integration, right? And, and, and the fact that at the, at the new building, that there's going to be integration of physical health, medical illness, and, and psychiatric. And one of the things that we definitely see in the general is we need also the integration of um, substance use disorders and treatment. Um, and nationally, one of the concerns that, uh, that's out there is that really a lot of those services are often siloed. Um, and, you know, you go to one place for substance, and then you have to get referred for your mental health somewhere else. And, and what we know is that really those things intersect, right, um, all the time. And, and that if we don't address all of those things, as well as the basic needs of um, housing and, uh, and social determinants of health, like economic issues, um, that it's really hard to overcome any one of those things, right, separately. It has to be an integrated approach. 
So, I mean, so, so citywide is one of our programs, for example, that is really expanding their intensive case management to have this integrated approach, right, to, to mental health substance and, and housing support um, and social support. Um, and as we're working with the city, which is also working towards getting more housing, right, for the homeless population, we're, we're working on how do we integrate our services into, you know, new scattered housing sites and um, and as people are housed, how do we help them maintain their housing and maintain their mental health and substance use disorder treatment, even as they're getting housed? And so we see that we have to look at all of those things together. And so the exciting thing is we are, we are working with, um, you know, the city, uh, especially with the mental health uh, SF transformation of really thinking about how we can integrate that. And with the new director uh, of mental health, um, Hilary Kunins, uh, Dr. Kunins, who's, who's a, an addiction medicine uh, doctor herself, and and really thinking about how do we how do we bring all of those issues together because it really has to have a, a multi pronged approach. You sound positive. You sound optimistic. Right. I try to be. You have to be <laughs> in this work. Yeah, well, it's it's inspiring to hear that kind of optimism. Let me bring uh, Dr. Chang, Eddie Chang. Uh, you've done some extraordinary work on uh, brain machines and uh, interfacing and all that sort of thing. Um, How's that, uh, how's the brain work in a really revolutionized mental health as you see it? I mean, understanding not only diagnostically, but in terms of treatment of brain disorders and mental health generally. Yeah, I mean, we're really excited about this. And um, there's this, I, I think it's a really interesting time because a while back, probably interaction between psychiatry department and nursery really just didn't exist. So uh, we'll get back to that in a second. But you know, why I think that this could be really potentially revolutionizing is just because we, we just need to understand with much better resolution uh, how the human brain works. And, um, you know, I, I think there's a potential paradigm shift ahead of us, um, essentially shifting away from the idea that, you know, the brain is a bag of chemicals and, and towards something that's, you know, thinking about it as an organ with really exquisite, precisely operating brain circuits that um, really use precise electrical impulses to communicate. And the concept with this is just trying to be able to understand how that works normally and then how it goes awry in neuropsychiatric conditions. And then what can we do to actually modulate in a very precise way how those circuits work. And so our goal is to really make therapies more precise, uh, more effective, and then also with less side effects. So, for example, um, you know, one of the areas that we're really thinking hard about is in depression, where uh, electroconvulsive therapy, um, shock therapy, is used, and it's quite effective actually for treating a really severe refractory depression. But it's also really kind of crude in terms of how it can really affect the entire brain, and is oftentimes associated with side effects like memory loss. And so, in our also, our excuse whole, me, uh, Dr. Chang, also got. Yeah, kind of a bad name back in the day because of people like uh, Sylvia Plath and writers like Ken yeah. Kesey and so forth. We had to overcome that as obstacles, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, but the reality is it's a really important mainstay of our, our care for, for patients um, who, you know, who are really sick and, and refractory. And so the goal is to just be a lot more precise and think about the brain, not that dissimilar from the heart, you know, where there's been a, a lot of progress and innovation around cardiac pacemakers, a lot of the devices that have been designed for the brain for things like Parkinson's and epilepsy, they work pretty well, but 
in reality, they were based on our knowledge uh, of, of cardiac pacemakers 30 years ago. And so our hope is to really modernize that with um, new knowledge about how those brain circuits work and how to really, really precisely and uh, delicately work with those circuits. And, um, you know, in the short term, it may involve implantable pacemakers, but I, I think that really for this to, to change the field, we have to use that knowledge to think about how to use it to generate non-invasive therapies. But all of this is really has to be grounded in the basic biology and knowledge about how these circuits work. It's an exciting new field, though, in so many ways. Not entirely new, but keep emphasizing these two organs, the heart and the brain. Um, what do you see as the obstacles, though, to the research up ahead in your field? I mean, in this new field we're talking about, which most people regard as new, but like I say, has a history. Well, you know, to be honest, like, I, I'm really optimistic about it. And the biggest obstacles are really cultural ones, um, like the interactions, you know, Historically, we just haven't had a lot of interactions with psychiatrists and, and we're having those meaningful discussions now in a way that we didn't before. And the, the biggest obstacle to this is that this is a new form of medicine that we're talking about. It involves um, analyzing brain waves essentially uh, from precise parts of the brain. And that requires engineering, you know, signal processing, machine learning, that's all being brought to bear on this problem. I'm optimistic because those things are all there. The obstacles are to creating a, a community, an environment that allows us to operate across these different kinds of fields of training. And I think that that's really something that's special about what uh, John and Matt have, have done is create a building where some of that really innovative work is going to take place um, from really all different uh, disciplines to make that happen. UCSF has always had a history of interdisciplinary work and aiming high and doing remarkably innovative things. And it's, it really is exciting to hear all this. And let me congratulate you personally, because I know you recently named as chair of UCSF's Department of Neurological Surgery. And uh, I'd like to find out maybe uh, what excites you the most and what your priorities are. Well, I mean, this excites me the most. I mean, this is, this is really what gets me going. I mean, I love operating. I love being in the operating room and taking care of patients um, in that really intimate way. Um, the operating microscope has allowed us to do surgeries, you know, on microscopic blood vessels and, and beyond. But I have to say, admittedly, we're kind of like at the, air, the end of the, that era of technical supremacy. I, I really do think we're, we're almost at the limits of what we can do with our hands. But we're not at the limits of what we can do with our mind and our creativity around other indications, the work that we're doing in, in neuropsychiatry. So I really see that that is part of our future in uh, neurosurgery. You know, it's these collaborations with uh, our colleagues to really think about some really, really difficult questions. Essentially, how does the brain work fundamentally? And then um, how, do we, how do we get it back on track when things go awry? And so that is what really gets me excited. And I think that that really is going to be the future of neurosurgery. You're reminding me of an interview I did years ago with um, Francis Crick of Watson and Crick, uh, who said, it's all about neurons, right? <laughs> that's, that's kind of what we're, uh, what we're looking at here. And uh, I, I wish you great success with this exciting field you're in. Uh, let me go back to Dr. Fortuna. I'm looking at some questions that are coming in from the audience. and. Um, uh, if I may, Lisa Fortuna, this is a question 
I think almost tailor-made for you. Um, someone sent this in and said, which particular groups of people do you anticipate being most impacted by the pandemic in the long term regarding their mental health and how do you prepare to treat them? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's several populations that, that we're worried about, uh, right? That we wanna make sure to take care of. Um, one is, is children. Um, you know, that's one of the groups that we're really wanting to prepare for because especially kids who already may have had some pre-existing um, problems like depression or anxiety or, or trauma or developmental disabilities um, who have been out of school, right? And out of the services of the things that are usually supportive for them um, that, you know, not around the people who are usually watching and taking care of them and making sure that they're, you know, meeting their, their milestones in terms of educational, you know, benchmarks and that. So we're, you know, so we feel like we're a little bit concerned that they may have really potentially regressed in some of those things, right, and, and needing extra help. So, you know, one of the things we're doing is working with our, our pediatrician colleagues in, in really optimizing how we can screen and, you know, and also with our school system and how we can screen and, um, and really sort of build a more seamless way of, of having referrals and levels of care that we can provide collaboratively. It's another one of those situations where I think we have to become less siloed um, in really working across, you know, psychiatry, primary care, um, school systems, uh, community-based organizations, and, and there's more and more happening in that realm. And then the other, the other groups that we're worried about are people who are most economically devastated, right? Um, or either people who are homeless and already without resources um, and have seen increases in um, their mental health uh, symptoms as well as substance use. Um, you know, we've seen more um, overdoses during the pandemic, um, you know, because of people's not, uh, not being linked to their services. So that's another group that we want to make sure we bring back into the fold and really support and figure out innovations to do that. Um, you know, how can we sort of do more con connecting, right? And sometimes using technology, right? You know, we, we got kind of interested in this phone thing, right? And, you know, and using technology with populations that we're like, well, we don't, you know, normally use technology with those populations. They can't keep phones or they don't have the technology. And, you know, we're actually working now on, you know, some, some, some innovation around using technology to better um, assess and screen and, and motivate people around their substance use uh, treatment um, and to monitor them and, and, and stay in closer contact with the kids. We're also looking at some ways to, to improve our um, uh, screening and, and triage. And, and with, with, with this idea of we have a sort of technology supported uh, navigators, right? Who have uh, cultural competence and connections with the community and can use technology to stay connected and help that navigation process. So we're, we're trying to create that technology innovation to be able to really um, bridge some of the, the needs that, that we know are gonna be increasing. And especially as, as children even go back to school. But I can't help ask you, but ask you about all those who, as you alluded to, have no access to technology, especially in the homeless population. Right, right. I mean, some did, right? But, but, but many, many didn't. So we really had to um, sort of get those things out. And then now we're, we're actually looking at how to improve their um, use of the phones, retention of the phones, and that we can actually use them for interventions, right? I mean, and, and more hybrid, right? Because we want to bring them back into in-person and in those connections, but this is, this will be an extension of services. And, 
we're also thinking about whether we can have some increase in the, in the precision of our of our interventions. If we can if we can use tools to better assess and follow, you know, how people do with those different interventions using technology, we could potentially get better and better at uh, identifying, you know, using our screening measures more appropriately, and then actually better targeting the interventions. And that's what we're hoping we'll be able to do. Share your hopes. Um, Let me go back to you, Matt State, if I may, Dr. State, with an audience question. What advice do you have for all of us to improve our mental health as we endeavor to emerge from the confinement of the past year? That's a, that's a big question. Um, Well, (laughs) it's going to sound like a commercial message. One of the things that you can do is go take a look at our website at the department of psychiatry. Actually, we have folks that, you know, one of the great things in being in this department and one of the things that brought me out here was just the extraordinary array of people that we have. And we have, um, uh, a whole group of folks who spend an enormous amount of time thinking about resilience and wellness um, and how to help promote, uh, you know, uh, positive brain health early in development all the way through the lifespan. Um, a lot of the, and this quite literally a lot of resources, um, our website is not the greatest in the world, but um, it is, I think, incredibly useful. Um, our vice chair for psychology, Alyssa Eppel, has put together an extraordinary array of videos uh, uh, curated materials, including apps, uh, links to helpful information uh, that goes all the way from just uh, providing some helpful tips, whether it's parenting a child now through the transition back to school um, or, or needing um, uh, clinical services. So I have to um, that I'm an admirer of Alyssa. She's been on, she's on the radio with me a number of times. There's yeah. Almost, just almost a remarkable person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's a way to access that. And I think, you know, it, it's a really important question. I, I think um, one of the things I would add uh, that uh, Dr. Fortuna didn't mention is that she was also very early in trying to think about um, the mental health challenges for people who were affected um, uh, by COVID. And so started a service very early that integrated psychiatric care uh, in the pulmonary clinics and the follow-up clinics for COVID. And I think that's another area. It's going to be, uh, you know, a unique population. I think, Fortunately, in San Francisco, that population isn't quite as large as it is in some of the other cities uh, in the United States. Um, but I think that's going to be a really significant challenge is understanding the direct impact of COVID, the infection, and then post-infectious uh, challenges around mental health, because at least the early evidence suggests that that's going to be a really significant number right now about, you know, in s- surveys of 30% or more of folks who suffered um, uh, from uh, the infection are now presenting with significant psychiatric symptomatology. A few more audience questions. Uh, let me go back to you, Dr. Chang. Uh, I think this is in your bailiwick. Uh, one of the listeners, uh, viewers wants to know, are there any new ways of looking and treating autism on the horizon? I'm thinking of that because of brain work. Yeah, I, I think it's a fantastic uh, question. And it's one of these areas that we're, we're, we're actually thinking about quite seriously with Matt and his group. Um, I, I think we got to start with the science and the biology. There's been a lot of empirical work with uh, new treatments, but um, ultimately we're trying to really understand how to take the knowledge that we have about the genetics of autism, which Matt has really been a pioneer in discovering the underlying you know, genetic substrates and mechanisms around autism and to really understanding what 
does that look like in terms of brain function in an adolescent and adult brain? That's where things are really unclear right now. Like what, what is the effect of those mutations on brain function? And if we can figure that out, we can figure out ways to intervene with that processing in a way that we haven't had before, both medical or with uh, ways of induced stimulation and whatnot. I'm, I'm really optimistic because, um, you know, through the work that's being done in animal models now, but also in the work that we've done with um, people, volunteers, you know, with autism that have come through our clinical center, which have donated tissue, et cetera. I, I think we're getting closer. I, I'm not saying that we're, we're there any, by any means, but there's, I think we're getting closer to the right kind of questions. Um, and we've had a terrific foundation with the genetics to start that, but um, those are the next steps. Thank you for that. And there's one last question here from an audience and I'm gonna to go to you, John Pritzker. Uh, one of the viewers wants to know, will you be researching non-traditional mental health treatments? For example, gut-brain connections. Um, I mean, is that part of the vision? We've heard before about psychedelics and all kinds of other things that may be part of the uh, whole gestalt here. Um, Michael, are you really asking me a question about psychedelics? <laughs> uh, you know, I leave that to, to Matt, Lisa, and-, and I'm actually and, just asking you about non-traditional kind of research. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that um, Barbara and Barney Osher funded the Osher uh, Center for Integrative Medicine, and I think that they've shown how effective alternative treatments can be. And I think that's also in Matt, Nettie, and Lisa's bailiwick. And so um, I would look forward to those, those, uh, those studies. Um, I do wanna say two things if I could take the opportunity, Michael. One is I'm sitting here listening to Matt, and Lisa, and Eddie, and philanthropy is only a, a different function of investment. And when you invest, the first thing you, you vet is the management. And I'm sitting here with a grin on my face because as I listen to them, these are the best and the brightest. And I, and I couldn't be more thrilled to have the opportunity to support them. We all, do, we all do what we can and play our part. And I just, I couldn't be more thrilled to be associated with them. Uh, the other thing is I have to give a shout out to my mom. Um, you know, stigma affects everybody. And my mom's kind of old school. And all along the way, I asked her if it was okay if I talked about Nancy this way. And she said, I wish you would. And uh, I, she may be listening tonight. And so I, I give her uh, big props for, for being so supportive. Well, props to your mother indeed. And uh, I can't help asking you about how you feel personally about the kind of advancements we've made since the 70s when this was so verboten and you were talking about, you couldn't even talk about it, right? It's apples and hammers. Uh, you know, I was a kid uh, when Nancy had her episode, uh, but I, I could see the frustration in my parents. Uh, there was just not much available. And I, I, I went and talked to her doctor after we lost her. And, I, I, and Matt, you can, you can uh, clarify this, but really the only thing that was available at the time was lithium. And it was, it was a, a pretty selective application. Uh, now, I mean, I'm sitting here listening to Eddie talk about what he can do. Um, on the executive council, we have a speaker every meeting and Eddie came and spoke and talked about what he was working on. And I literally was bouncing in my chair. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, I, I just, I, I couldn't be more thrilled about what's happening. And 
when September, October rolls around to see this thing uh, crank up its engine and, and, and get underway, I think we're gonna see world-class things come out of there. Uh, and I think this isn't just about the community, although community is, is critical. I think this will have global impact, the work that they're doing. Well, it's a wonderful way to honor your sister's memory and congratulations again on Thank you. the award you're getting this evening. And uh, Matt, you want to say some final things about uh, the building and what's up ahead? Um, tough to follow that. Um, I, I just have to say that this has been, it, it's been an extraordinary opportunity and, and um, uh, I think just listening uh, to John, um, uh, you know, if it weren't for for John and Lisa and their vision, and they hung in there really through thick and thin, they gave you a short version of this story. But you know, when when people were not focused on mental health, and and it was really a struggle to hang in and to and to make this a priority. Um, uh, you know, they they transformed the landscape, and I think we're you know the the opening of the building in some ways is going to be you know um, the the uh, the end of of an initial arc. But as John just said, I think when this opens, honestly, I feel the same way. I look at at, at Dr. Chang and Dr. Fortune and just think. Geez, you know, I, I open the building, get the hell out of the way, and these people are going to transform what it means, um, uh, what it means to be a patient, uh, what it means to be a family member. And, um, and all I can do is, you know, say we're going to work hard every day to try to fulfill uh, the vision that, that the Pritzkers laid out for us about um, uh, the importance of mental health and, and, um, and, and changing the narrative. So um, that's, I think that's it. That's what I got to say. Well, some great strides up ahead, and I can envision that. And uh, I mean, we've made such advances, as I said, just from the 70s. We can maybe move at that same trajectory, or hope at least to move in that same fashion with that kind of uh, quantum advancement. Uh, I wonder, in fact, uh, if I hope those who are with us this evening can work toward, on an individual level, destigmatizing and thinking about just how important it is to destigmatize mental health. It's vitally important. Uh, and people have to be aware of it and conscious of it. And certainly those who suffer, and particularly the families that suffer and friends that suffer, know it all too well. But my hat goes off to all of you. And again, I congratulate the two recipients, uh, Matt State, congratulations to you. John Pritzker, congratulations to you. Uh, an award well-earned and well-deserved. Uh, and uh, so good to have Edward Chang and Lisa Fortuna with us. And certainly our hats off and thanks to the Commonwealth Club for all they've done here this evening. Um, I'm not sure who I turn it over to here because I'm looking in the chat room and nobody's giving me any indication. So I'm going to have to be a little awkward with this. Confusion. I give it back to Matt. Let him keep going. No, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, my instinct is to say to Gloria Duffy or George Dobbins, you know, come on and join us. Um, but I just really want to thank everybody uh, and particularly thank you two for getting this really extraordinary. Um, thing in motion. You've got the people, you've got certainly the drive, you've got the funding, you've got really everything that makes this an exciting and extraordinary project. Full steam ahead. I wish you the best. And thank you Thanks, so much. Michael. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Gratitude is really what I'm saying to all of you. Thank you. Thank Take you. Care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. 
If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.